Forgetitude. Doubling down on Forgetitude? Hmm. That sounds like a sequel to a movie I didn't watch. Maybe I did, and I forgot. Hard or it's a or it's a live album. Hmm. Live at the Forgetitude? Yeah, I think I would band. listen to that album. Would that be a Queen? That'd be like a Queen album, probably. Or maybe the Rolling Stones. No, they're both no? too serious. Yeah, never, never been one for the Rolling Stones. That's because, because they stink. Yeah, that would be the one. If you have to write 50 songs to get one good song, you stink. Unlike ACDC, that just writes the same song 50 times and it's still good. It's called Mastering the Formula. (laughs) I have no notes. How could you? I think it's funny that, yeah, one of the rock bands that my son liked first was ACDC. And that's because their music gets inserted into all kinds of weird places because they have things that children will happily chant. I'll keep the smart-ass reply to myself because this is a family program. Is it? That doesn't sound familiar. Ah. Hello, alleged human, and welcome to the Chaos Lever Podcast. My name is Ned, and I'm definitely not a robot. Just like a real human, I am susceptible to all manner of ailments, such as poison sumac. Truly, a robot would not inflict such itching and burning on themselves just to maintain their cover. That would be highly illogical. A trait that is distinctly human, like me. With me is Chris, who's also here. Chris, say hi while I go fetch another bottle of Calmine lotion. You know that it actually just makes things worse, right? I actually do. Calamine, it seals in the sumac. It certainly didn't help the one time I used it. So I actually don't use Calamine lotion, but, you know, it's a reference point. For folks out there right. trying to your best option actually i don't know a lot of people don't know this but your best option is to smear with butter and then sit outside in the sun well i'll certainly get eaten by wolves if i do that so i won't be so worried saying, about this poison sumac anymore and you made a new friend <laughs> it's yes, a win-win very... scenario oh i suppose wow especially for the wolf yeah the wolf really does win in that situation unlike most tales where the wolf usually gets killed which is sad and wolfist yes very wolfist do you think wolves have their own fairy tales where it's the human being evil or is that just reality i am positive that there is a version of red riding hood that was written from the perspective of the wolf That's absolutely a thing that exists in the world. I don't need to Google it. It has to. I mean, given the fact that we have things like Wicked. Yeah, that absolutely exists. What was that one guy that was that rewrote a whole bunch of fairy tales, but from the perspective of the the villain in every case? I feel like he did one for. uh, There's definitely Christopher something. But yeah, he, he did the, you know, Wicked kind of version. Uh, he did uh, one for Sleeping Beauty, I think, and maybe one for Cinderella, too. And then I, he might have run out of steam. Because that's Cinderella, that's... underrated band. 
they're from Philly, so I guess you have to say that. <laughs> it's the rules. <laughs> then, you, then you have to slam a citywide special. <laughs> I suppose. Well, let's talk about something else. Totally unrelated. Go ahead. Let, let's talk about layer one. <gasps> Wait a minute. We learned about that last week. Well, we kind of did, didn't we? We kind briefly of touched on the OSI model last week. Mm-hmm. It didn't Aside from the fact that we talked about how they were hopelessly interconnected in terms of layers and their lack of distinction, um, mm-hmm. we didn't really talk about them from any perspective that was meaningful or useful to people who didn't understand them. So what we can talk about today, and we will, is one slash two layers that are super duper important. Some Mm -hmm. would argue the importantest. Everyone but Cisco would say (laughs) that layer one and layer two, which is the actual physical infrastructure, which is layer one, and layer two, which is how those physical infrastructures talk to each other on a peer-to-peer basis, make the internet possible. It would be difficult to use any of the other layers without those first two. Right. I mean, we made the joke last week that Wi-Fi is the physical layer, Mm -hmm. which is true in the sense that it's a way to connect two devices together. Your computer connects to the router. It's called the physical layer because when it was designed, there was no Wi-Fi. There was only Y. Why are we doing this? Why are any of us here? Or the YMCA? I can see you're in a great mood and I'm already upset about it. <laughs> Excellent. But anyway, yes, to be absolutely crystal clear, I think layer one is the most definitive layer. It's the physical connection from one computer to another. Mm-hmm. In the olden days, it was cable based. Way before ethernet cables, there were other kinds of cables. But the point is you had one device over here and one device over there. And you had a cable running on the floor that was a tripping hazard that connected the two together. Mm -hmm. Layer one, done. Okay. What's amazing is we've made incredible progress, but that basic connection is really still the same as it was all the way back when telegraphs were a thing. It's true. (laughs) And that's going to come in, um, you know, later on. Layer two, and I'm only going to talk about this briefly because I don't want to get too, too into the weeds about the different OSI layers, but layer two is the data version of how those two devices talk. Mm -hmm. So if you have a computer connected to a router, they have to be able to communicate. They have to know the address of each other and send messages back and forth over a dedicated wire or over a switch. And that's what layer two does. So layer one is the highway. Layer two is the street signs. In our, Fair? in our metaphor, in our analogy. So that's really as far as I want to go with layer two. I just want people to understand that that's the connection from the data side that makes the physical connection work for something more than just an ability to electrocute you at long distances. Though that is fun and I don't want to fun. discount it. It's a, some would say that's a binary communication. You're either being electrocuted or you're not. Um, but anyway, let's leave the OSI layer aside 
anything above layer one from for here on out. And if we want to talk about it later on in the course of the calendar year, we can. But what I wanted to talk about was how layer one underpins the internet in crazy ways that people really probably literally never think about. And one of the reasons that I want to talk about that and giving me an absolutely perfect transition, advertising company Google announced this week that they are laying a new transatlantic cable in order to directly connect South Carolina, Bermuda, and Portugal. Hmm. The name of this cable is Nuvum, which is Portuguese for cloud, which one, tells you the precise purpose of this new project, and two, is a guarantee that I am pronouncing it completely wrong. It is spelled N-U-V-E-M. I promise I'm doing my best. No, I didn't look it up. The project, of course, follows in the footsteps of a ton of other subsea cable projects for the Goog, all of which have fun names. Just a short list from their sadly no longer updated summary blog post about their undersea cable initiatives shows projects every year from 2016 to 2021. Now, what they don't do, annoyingly, is show a graphic image of their worldwide connection map, but I suppose one can't have everything. I feel like that map exists on some other uh, organization's site. And it's not just Google, it's all the under undersea cables across the world. But it is interesting to see where they decide to string them from and to and how those physical locations have very real impacts on where data centers are built. How uh, I'm trying to think of other economic things. Mm. There's nothing but the cloud, Ned. There is nothing but the cloud. Um, but no, it's, it's, it is interesting to see how it, it does at least impact data center design and also which companies are involved in building these cables and how they're actually laid down. Yep. And we're going to get into a bunch of that. Sweet. I just think it's interesting to note that we kind of take the concept of a worldwide internet completely for granted. <laughs> it's true. If I want to send, you know, I'll do a VOIP phone call to somebody that's in London, I can just do that. Mm -hmm. And the amount of latency on that phone call is disturbingly small, considering how the fuck far away London is. I don't know if you looked it up, but it is 16 million miles. Uh, yeah, I had a video call with someone in New Zealand pretty recently, which if you're looking at a globe, it's pretty much the other side of the planet. And the lag was almost imperceptible. And I was annoyed about it. <laughs> almost. Like, can't you move faster? How dare you change the laws of physics? So it's important to realize that all of these connections across the globe are made possible by technology that can only be described as extremely long ass cables. They connect everything. And it's not just from ocean to ocean, it's over land. Mm -hmm. And to the point that you just made, some of them, we don't even know where they are. In 2017, a computer science professor called Paul Barford 
put together a comprehensive map of just the overland and underground cables in the United States. This, it turned out, was a lot harder than it sounds. Mm. A lot of the records uh, where the record where the cables were buried, what they connect to, were in the hands of private companies, uh, some of which are tiny, some of which were stubborn, some that just didn't have records to share. So mm-hmm. Paul and his team had to do a lot of inference. And that is right, folks. Just like that web server that got drywalled into never being found again in your data center when you were a student worker, based on a true story for pretty much everyone in IT, there are cables out there that deliver you your Netflix, and we have literally no idea where they are. No, we tend to find them when someone cuts through them by accident. Right. We know where they start sometimes. We know where they end occasionally. Everything in the middle is kind of a guess. Barford's model mapped out 113,000 miles of cables in the lower 48. The way these cables work and work together are kind of interesting, and there's a ton of annoying politics around the concept. Mm -hmm. In a previous iteration of this show, we talked about the controversies around the rights of way law just when it comes to putting wires on poles, on utility poles. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, I won't get into the whole thing now, aside from a note that the FCC has been fighting an uphill battle for a long time on this. Ooh, foreshadowing. And why I'm not going to get into it now, what I mean is I'm going to get into it now. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) If AT&T owns a utility pole, should they be forced to allow Verizon to run ISP cables on that pole? Should I mean, the answer... Should AT&T be allowed to own a utility pole? It's That's in the name, too. utility. But anyway. The thing is, the common carrier philosophy and the laws around sharing space on poles means that AT&T has to. What they don't mm-hmm. have to do and what they don't do is make it easy. Indeed. But these various connections from one person to another invariably will go from one company to another, whether you know it or not, and whether they like it or not. Each one of these little cables is owned by a municipality or a company, be it big or small, and the packets pass between them freely. So in a theoretical model, let's make the map between my house and Ned's hovel. I mean house. It's great. You'll eventually have four walls. I don't think I need four. Three seems to be working just fine. (laughs) So for simplicity's sake, let's pretend that we're not talking through a third-party app. Because if we just, if we add in Zoom or StreamYard or BarnCar or Cheese World or whatever app we're using this week, it just makes it more complicated. The concept is still the same, but let's pretend that it's just me directly connecting to your hovel. I mean, Mm -hmm. else. So in this scenario, I have Verizon, Ned has Comcast, and we live, let's just say, 100 miles apart. Now, on the East Coast, this is an interesting, smaller scenario. But in both cases, I have a router in my house, which I either own or rent, is connected to my computer. Same thing on Ned's side. Mm -hmm. That router 
is connected to a modem, which in most cases is completely the responsibility of the ISP. In my case, it's in the outside shed. It could be anywhere in your house. Sometimes they're actually not in your house, but they're individual to you. Behind that is a giant question mark. <laughs> Everything that happens after that point is completely out of your control. So if I follow the packet from me, it goes to my router, to the ISP modem, into the next hop or junction box in the ISP's model. And then what is the name of the broadcast? It's BSG, BGS, BLR. BGP. That's the one. Yes. That Border picks gateway up protocol. And says, what is the most efficient way to get from Chris's house to Ned's house? The amazing thing about BSG, BMX, BGP, is that it is dynamic. And in the Northeast where we live, there are hundreds of options in total uh, route from one to another. And BXF will change it depending on network uh, uh, status, mm -hmm. which is kind of amazing. Indeed. The thing about working and living in the Northeast is that these are all short haul connections. Most of the time, the wire will be, I don't know, 10 kilometers long. If it has to be, I'm in sort of a suburb, Ned's in sort of a suburb. There's going to be some distances where it's a single straight shot in the city or inside of areas that are, are more densely populated. Those connections are far, far shorter, which gives us in the Northeast corridor, a very unique opportunity to have lightning fast internet, basically regardless of what happens. So that's kind of cool. East coast One rules. Thing yeah, more or less. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's the prime takeaway of this entire episode is, you know, East Coast is yeah. the best. Fuck all you haters. <laughs> uh, we only have a hurricane occasionally. Um, <laughs> one thing that you used to be able to do with ease and regularity was actually track the various hops. Remember when I gave this example, at a certain point, it was a bunch of question marks. Mm-hmm. Um, what you used to be able to do was run a command called traceroute and traceroute was super fun. And if you ever look at a CS textbook, um, well, even a modern one, because they realistically haven't been updated since 1904, they'll still say that this is possible. What traceroute would do is say, I know what the end goal is, is to get from my house to Ned's house. Now let's check in every single stop along the way. And what was fun about that is you could see the astonishing amount of connections that were required. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's a, that's a fun aside. It no longer works because network people got uselessly annoying and decided that in the name of security through obscurity, they have disabled all traceroute by default on devices. Right. Those devices will no longer respond to ICMP, which is what traceroute right. is using. Yes, because there's no more fun in the world. Mm -mm. We drained it all out. So that works great in the Northeast. But let's pretend instead of Ned living 100 miles away, he lived 3,000 miles away all the way across the country in Portland, in Oregon. Did you know there was another Portland? That doesn't sound accurate. Yeah, you're probably right. So if that was the case things get a little dicier 
from the Philadelphia area to Portland, it's a guarantee that traffic has to pass through one of a handful of long haul lines. In that 2017 study, they identified four, count them, four choke points going from the West Coast to the East Coast. Meaning that if the best line was down, DMX would have to route that traffic around it. But if all four were down, no traffic could traverse the lower 48. Do you know why? Because there's no physical connection between them. BGP would still find a way to route that traffic in a very inefficient route. But it right. would still find a way once the uh, route tables were updated and converged. But yeah, it would be awful. The latencies would spike way higher than you would expect. I, I don't know what the average latency is between Philadelphia and Portland, but it's probably on the order of 80 milliseconds or something. Uh, it would double or triple easily. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually what you would end up probably doing is either routing all the way through South America or literally around the world in the wrong direction. Which it sounds like fun. Yay. <laughs> so that all brings us back to the undersea cables. If it's that hard to talk cross country, how in the hell do we talk to London? Well, there are actually a surprising number of discrete cables that go the 4,000 odd miles from New York City to Europe, in addition to a few newer ones that are originating from North Carolina and Virginia. As of May 2022, there were they were only a small part of the total 436 undersea cables that existed in the world. Hmm. And if your traffic is going across the ocean, you're using one of those cables probably mm -hmm. more than one, depending on where you're going. Um, new aside, because apparently I should just title this episode random asides. Um, this is kind of worrying for internet freedom advocates. These cables are increasingly being dominated and owned by the usual big tech suspects. That's not at all surprising. Honestly, no, because at this point, it's more than half. Yeah. The, the two big businesses that they're in is if you're a cloud hyperscaler, you need a you want to control the means by which your data is transmitted between locations. So you run an undersea cable. And if you're one of the like, say, Meta or Google, you know, the giants out there that drive a ton of traffic, you want to give that traffic priority. And also, the more people that are connected to the internet, the more ads you can show them. So you are going to build your own undersea cables, which means a lot of these cables are now privately owned instead of a public utility. And that that could be bad. It can be bad. Now, we'll talk about some bandwidth questions at the end of this episode, but you really just hit on all of the major problems or major Ooh. concerns, I guess I should say. Uh, it's probably too early to call them problems. Um, but yeah, if AWS is running the cable, it stands to reason that they're going to prioritize AWS traffic. Those cables are crazy expensive to run. Estimates around $400 million, which 
I mean, that's not bad if you got it, I guess. But yes. you're going to want an ROI. The cable that Google is running is no different. It's called, you know, the Portuguese word for cloud for a reason. Mm-hmm. It's implying that they want to enhance the speed of GCP to GCP private data center connections. It is not to, quote, benefit humanity as a whole. <laughs> did they did they put that in their press release? Well, I mean, it's sort of implied. Yeah, just like every tech company. We're here Pretty, to help people. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so this can be problematic, but it is important to note that the common carrier rules still do apply, and they are sharing bandwidth they're just not prioritizing other people's bandwidth. Mm-hmm. Something more problematic, as we talked about, these are effectively choke points. In the Atlantic, it's hard to find the cables because the Atlantic, I don't know if you know this, is an ocean and it's deep. Yeah. And it gets deep real fast. Ah. What doesn't get deep besides our philosophical conversations? But um, cha. Well done. Well done, sir. Various seas. I see. And what can happen in various seas is, quote unquote, accidentally or otherwise, these undersea cables can be cut. And it happens on the regular. For example, a quick Google. Research came up with 2008, 2011, 2013, 2015. I could go on and I will. 2016, 2019, 2020, cables were seen as being intentionally cut off of the coast of various countries to affect internet connectivity in those countries. And of course, as is tradition, those are just the ones we know about. The thing about these cables is they're often out in the middle of nowhere because they go, they kind of out of necessity are gigantic and it's impossible to patrol them. In a lot of cases, we don't know who did the cutting or why, but we know what the effects are. That 2008 incident ended up knocking several countries completely offline until traffic was able to be rerouted. 70% of internet traffic in Egypt, 60% in India, and in some reports, 100% of traffic in Iran was disrupted. Now, I said this was hard to do in the Atlantic, but it is not impossible. In fact, in World War I, Britain cut all but one of Germany's undersea telegraph lines and tapped the last remaining one. The fact that they had that one tapped means that they were intercepting and decrypting German communications, which a lot of scholars help uh, point to the fact that that helped get more allies into the war. Mm. If you believe that the Zimmerman telegram was in fact a real thing. I'll just leave that as a fun little tidbit for the conspiracy theory inclined out there. Now, lest you think that this kind of I don't know, internet phasing warfare is a historical artifact. There have been suspicions of Russian submarines cutting undersea cables as recently as last year. So what do we have? We have a sort of necessity in terms of worldwide communication. We have 
a very simple yet somehow still deeply technological solution that involves running a long ass cable 4,000 miles on the ocean floor. Honestly, it's not that much different than what you come up with when you want to tie two cans together with a string and do a phone conversation. It's the same basic concept, except the cans run a different protocol and the cable is a lot longer. That's true. That's true. And I know what you're probably thinking. Why isn't there anything better? Why are we still pushing undersea cables? Why aren't we using lasers in space? Space lasers. (sighs) We'll get to that in a minute. Um, But the short answer to the question, which we kind of teased at the beginning, is the laws of physics still apply. Damn it. I know. Regardless of what Terrence Howard thinks, nothing is faster than light going through glass cables. How fast? You might be asking, Hmm. well, the Microsoft slash Facebook owned Maria cable, which is another direct 4,000 mile connection between Virginia Beach, which is uh, in Virginia, and Sopalana, Spain, which is in Spain. That cable has an approximate bandwidth of, wait for it, 200 terabits per second. I'll take three. And the amazing thing about that is that when the cable was run, it was only estimated to have a top speed of 160 terabits per second. The freaking thing just went 20% faster just because. Advances in technology. I mean, we've found all kinds of interesting ways to push copper cables to transmit signals even faster and beyond what we originally thought they were capable of. I remember the early versions of like cat six cables that had to be like physically separated from other cat six cables to make sure there was no interference across the cables. And there were very strict ways that you had to run them. And then eventually people came up with other implementations of it where you didn't need to do all that. And you could still get one gig to your desktop. And thank goodness for that. Because I need that. I I need it. So. There are other ways of communicating worldwide. They are just not convenient, cost effective, uh, or particularly fast. Um, To answer your question about why do we not use a laser in space? Well, two important reasons. One, the Earth is moving fast. Two, the satellite is also moving. Aiming a beam of such precision is let's just say economically infeasible. Another problem with that, a laser beam can only go in a straight line and it needs line of sight. Mm -hmm. Meaning clouds and mountains become a problem. A cable can make turns and doesn't give a shit about the weather in most cases. Mm -hmm. Also, in order to push 200 terabits per second through a laser, you would need an unbelievably powerful laser. And that amount of power is also prohibitive, not to mention outstandingly dangerous. Uh, When you have that much laser power, I think it's called a weapon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyone that has ever tried, 
to you exactly right. Anyone that has ever tried to use microwave power plants in SimCity will surely remember that accidentally burning down half of downtown every five years or so is just not what the kids call a good idea. Well, when you put it that way, as a as a digression, there was a hack in one of the versions of SimCity that you could get unlimited money by typing funds, I think, in all caps on the keyboard, and it would just keep giving you like $10,000 or something every time you typed it. So I would use that to build ridiculous cities that were otherwise impossible. And uh, my favorite one was Godzilla Island, where it was just nuclear <laughs> power plants. Nice. That's it. What else do you need, really? <laughs> well, you, you could summon a kaiju for some reason, or that was like... I don't know why that was in SimCity, but you could, and then it would rampage through your city. And so Because that's the fun part. Certainly much more fun than trying to build a an efficient municipal light rail system next to a highway. You just you can't fucking do it, Chris. You can't do it. It's so frustrating. It's gonna burn it all down. Do you uh you need a minute? Um, yeah, you kinda dredge some stuff up there, my man. <laughs> Hey, thanks for listening or something. I guess you found it worthwhile enough if you made it all the way to the end. So congratulations to you, friend. You accomplished something today. Now you can go sit in the tub, fill it with oatmeal, and just kind of lay there for a while. You've earned it. You can buy more about the show by visiting our LinkedIn page. Just search Chaos Lever or go to our website, chaoslever.cow, where you'll find show notes, blog posts, and general tomfoolery. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us Ta-ta for now. My voice cracked. Did you hear that? Uh, uh, like channeling my son. <laughs> I'm an adult now. Uh, that is a very accurate rendition. And I do it to him all the time and he gets real mad. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm taller Good than him. Keep it up. For now. <laughs>